Welcome to Six Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. In our first episode, I talked to Mel and Nick about how growing Vend was like growing a family. In this episode, we talk about what it's like if you have to break up that family. A lot of the companies that we've talked with so far on these six, four episodes have recounted near-death experiences in terms of getting very close to day zero and just skirting by and living to tell the tale. Did Vend have any of those types of stories? And Oh, no. oh, it was all, mm-hmm, yeah. all roses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Walk in the park. <laughs> so, so do tell us. Nervous laugh. <laughs> those are sometimes challenging times for cultures, and sometimes cultures are made or break through those stories. So just kind of curious about how the Venn stories played out. Hi, I'm um, Mal Rousel, and along with Vaughan Rousel, who's now Vaughan Ferguson, um, started out Vend and essentially took care of all things to do with uh, people and culture. Yeah, well, we had that time that happened just before I left. And it was the classic, classic, classic kind of, um, you know, scaling company startup move where you, because, you, you know, in a startup, you're either hiring behind the curve or hiring above, you know, in front of the curve. So, and we'd always hide behind the curve, which meant that you're in a state of like perpetual trying to catch up. Um, you never quite have enough people to service the um, the customers. And so you're always busy and trying to, you know, um, hire and train new people into a team that's already flat out. Um, and then, of course, you can hire ahead of the curve, you know, so you make your projections think you're going to get this many uh, customers in with this much work and so you know you're going to hire in advance of that so we decided to do that and then of course the classic move what happens the you know reality um, actual doesn't meet forecast <laughs> and all of a sudden you're in a big uh, fiscal hole um, and with with no way out and so well there is a way out and it's an uncomfortable Uh, way out Um, and so we had to lay off many 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 people 80 people it was about was about 20 percent I think 20 to 30 percent of the the staff yeah and we had to yeah that and that we closed down entirely the Berlin um, office and but it's interesting because um, and that was very goodness gracious me uh, that was so interesting because at that time, had Vaughn and I separated? Maybe earlier. Right. I think early that year, yeah, you had. I think I think we just only just only separated, uh, and also that and and my dad had been diagnosed with bowel cancer at that same time, and I decided to start my own business with all of the you know financial concerns that that had. Um, and then this thing happened, this thing blew up at the end. So it's quite a, a nice resilience building episode in my life. 
Um, and the but the the question that you that you asked is a really interesting one. How do you go about doing that when you've built a culture on family that's all around family and inclusiveness and togetherness and all of that kind of stuff? And I think that it's something that I've thought about a lot, and it's something that I remember we talked about at the time and had some quite thorough debates on about this culture of family versus culture of team. You know, like this, what metaphor do you choose to to describe it? And in particular, in regards to some of these difficult decisions that you need to make in business. Um, but anyway, how do you do that and still keep your culture and I think look I think the biggest thing for me um, was to be real and to be human and to be authentic um, and cut through any bullshit at all um, and be straight up so you know during that time I would walk the floor several times a day just talking to people trying to find out what people's concerns were, trying to find out what people were really thinking about things, what questions people had, and trying to get sort of a sense of the the feeling that was happening um, and having honest conversations with people, you know, and, and being just being honest um, and also being vulnerable um, and being an actual person, not you know, the HR manager or, you know, head of people and culture or whatever, but being Mel um, and having real honest conversations with people. Um, and then, of course, in the background, working your ass off, trying to make sure that you run a good process, that people feel supported, that there are no holes in communication. You know, we, we've had um, several ask me anythings and, I remember the very first one that we had, uh, there was a question, there was a rumour circulating that Vaughan was going to be replaced as the CEO by the board. Um, so I just flat out, you know, asked him, so Vaughan, I hear that you're being replaced as CEO by the board. You know, just like, just get it, just get any kind of things from under the carpet and put them out in the, in the, the daylight so that they can be um, examined um, and you know making sure that you're very transparent like that and then just being real you know that's 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 pretty much all you can do and through that experience which was very difficult and really hard really really hard for a lot of people I had a number of people like I don't know six or seven people contact me afterwards and say, you know, it was a terrible thing to um, to go through, but um, thank you so much for, you know, supporting me, for the way that you handled it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think where it doesn't work is where you actually just don't care. <laughs> there are a number of people who just really don't care, uh, and that's not so helpful. Or when you're worried so much about you know following the correct procedure that you forget to think about the people um or that when or when you're being inauthentic I, any of those three i think 
um, just it's not going to work so well. And, you know, yes, the culture took a hit, um, obviously. But I think we, I think people were able to see that, um, you know, there was a real sense of, of uh, care there. Hello, my name's Nick Holdsworth. I started out kind of, I guess, doing a range of different stuff, customer-facing roles, support. Uh, but then over time, that sort of evolved into uh, chief marketing officer, building up the go-to-market functions. I think I think the, the measure of a culture is not how it is when things are great, but when things are challenging. And so I think, you know, you you invest in the same way you invest in your brand, right? Because it gives you uh, um, it gives you sort of reserves of uh, in the bank in case you suffer a few knocks. Um, or if things are challenging, right? It's it's you still have to work on rebuilding it, but it, it sets you up really well for that. Um, I think definitely when we when we sort of finally made the call that we had to preserve capital and and you know reduce our headcount, the mentor that kind of stuck with us all the way through is that how we treat those that leave will be remembered by those that stay, and therefore we need to be really focused on ensuring that we do right by those that you know that have to exit the company in order for those that are left behind who you know, sometimes end up with survivor's guilt, don't feel like we did a good job um, and we'd hire any of those people back as well. Um, Mel, you were a real rock during that time, I think, even though you and Vaughn had separated earlier in the year, I think, you know, just having your kind of experience and your wisdom and, and almost in, in a way um, slightly objective view on things was really amazing for the company. I think, um, I think, if I, yeah, like, and, I, and it took it, like, it, it does take a while to kind of get it back. I think it's that the, the positives from it was you develop a bit more resilience when things are going well for year after year after year. You, you can kind of be in a bit of a self um, built bubble. And I think realizing that it's a competitive market that, you know, right, growing a company is really challenging is really important to just kind of in, ensure that you've got that resilience and you've got that um, acknowledgement of potential risks. I think. Um, but, you know, eventually you kind of start to get back on even footing and you can grow again and you recognize that actually you can get through that stuff and therefore you, you can come up with a, a stronger culture on the other side. Um, just to, just in terms of the kind of build up to that point, you know, Mel, you raised a really good point there, actually, that, that we were behind the curve. Although we were taking capital and although we were growing every year, sometimes doubling our headcount, we were actually relatively conservative in terms of our spend. Like we wouldn't. We wouldn't blow money on marketing unless it worked. We'd take an incremental approach to, um, you know, spend, see if it works, and then invest further. We wouldn't send 100 people into a market. We'd send two or three, see if it worked, and then follow with a few more. And so so in some ways, actually, we were kind of growing relatively conservatively for, for the first few years, despite the fact that the numbers were going north quite a lot. But personally, that's a bit of an adjustment I had to make coming to an organization like Zero, a much larger organization, where so you've got to make really big swings with really big results built around a really big business case whereas i t tend to take a much more kind of iterative test and learn approach and so um so i think that, that the surprise for us was that first the start of 2015 after years of the capital you know was a kind of it was a bit of a gold rush in SaaS from 2010 through to 2015 because companies like zero were doing exceptionally well salesforce zendesk slack was just starting to bubble up and so there was a lot of capital available then around about 2015, there was a kind of period where it started to dry up a little bit. And that just hit us at the point where we were doing another capital raise. And at the point where our existing investors have said, look, you know what? You guys are always behind the curve. Get ahead of the curve because it's going to be plenty of capital. So boost your sales and marketing, you know, spend more dollars, hire up your engineering team. 
and it just it shortened our runway to a point where it wasn't prudent as it had been in the previous years and we kind of for the first time we needed the cash rather than it was a kind of nice to have and that's effectively what led us to that point it's something i i often advise early stage companies of now is like just really keep a close eye on that runway never find yourself in a position when you've got two or three months left and you need the capital um and so um that you know and that's definitely a lesson that you know i've seen work quite well and other companies i've been involved in yes i know early in the the early days vaughn and i were adamant that no one would ever be made redundant we were absolutely adamant that no person would come on and then be made redundant like we wouldn't talk about we wouldn't use the word it was just like a real thing with us and i think that was a bit touch naive um looking back uh, because at the end of the day you're running a business and I think that that you have to be able to um, you know especially when the business is growing so quickly and you're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work you have to be able to be malleable enough that you can fit your your people to the the problem that you're trying to solve and and what's working for you so I think that it's important to be able to, like I wouldn't advise myself to do that again. Um, I'd figure out a way of um, framing that thing in my head so that I could marry up a commitment to good people and culture and a commitment to running a commercially sound business. Um, I think those things are really important. And with that whole runway business, I know that, because it was quite funny, um, Vaughan's a real risk taker and I'm actually quite risk averse. Um, and so, you know, I let him, I let him as his wife, you know, he could do whatever, but he was never ever allowed to uh, bet the family home. No personal guarantees, um, no mortgages on the house. Uh, he could earn next to nothing as he did for like, you know, two or three years and then pay himself a tiny little salary and that all that was fine you know we existed on bloody carrots and silver beet for at least one winter um but never ever ever not ever the family home um and so and i think that that's you know that's quite i don't know it was just something that you were talking about with the runway uh, Nick and you know like with the so I would constant in those early days I would constantly be saying to Vaughan how's it looking how's it looking you know and he'd go right yeah we're we're go-. as long as I heard we're working towards break even the plan has us towards break even I'd be like sweet as great good on you mate keep going um, because I knew that as long as we could get to break even we'd be fine and then if we decide to take on more money and you know extend the runway and as long as we had a plan to go to break even i'd be like sure okay that's fine um so he was the super ambitious risk taker um and i was the um shall i i'm going to call myself the voice of reason there you go yin and yang yin and yang i mean every 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 team needs that right you kind of need the you need the balance. I think if everybody's like risk taking head in the sand only, then it's <laughs> it's the danger zone. Just just one thing you pointed there, Mel, which I think is a really interesting lesson around setting expectations. 
with your team and um, something I often talk about kind of founders or early stage businesses. Now, you don't want to sort of spook the horses with everybody that comes on board, but it's important to let people know, hey, you're joining a startup. Like, There's an element of risk to this, but if it works out well, the upside is fantastic. But, you know, if it looks like we're like if we if we take these big risks and we have to make changes, you know, I don't want you to feel and if that happens, like it's necessarily a reflection or a failure or anything like that. I think it's making sure that people have that understanding and have that have that mindset. Maybe maybe for a couple of years there at Vanbit was, you know, we didn't set the right expectations that this was still a kind of risky venture and, and there was a possibility that things wouldn't go the way we predict. Another another thing that I talk a lot with founders about is expectation about, you know, team growth, right? When people come on board a startup, maybe maybe they're the kind of lead salesperson at that point, but they might not be the VP of sales in two years because the company could outgrow them. The requirements of the role could outgrow them. It's a great opportunity if they can develop into it. But it's important people don't come on board sort of expecting that they're going to just be the head of sales forever. And and the, the earlier you can kind of set those expectations, the the less challenging they are when you actually have to kind of deal with the consequences of that in a year or two years versus early on. It's like, oh, yeah, I recognize maybe sometime we're going to need a CRO and I'm comfortable with that. It doesn't always work out. doesn't make it. Sometimes it's kind of still a tough conversation, but I do think um, – you know, making sure that people come on board the journey, have a sort of understanding about the pros and the cons and being really transparent about that throughout it helps. Mm. I think that's a, that raises another interesting point about the old um, ESOP, Equally Share Ownership Program. Do you remember this, all of these countless hours and conversations about people not, people... In terms of setting expectations, I think that's an important one to really try and set the expectations clearly with what is the CSOP and what does it mean? And and um, because I think that we all, you know, um, Vaughan and I and Nick and JC and, and Angus, um, we're, you know, all knew the value of the ESOP, um, but really no one else particularly did outside of the executive team I think or perhaps knew the value of it but didn't really understand how it worked and um, and therefore you know it either led to misunderstandings or just a kind of a missed opportunity in terms of the you know what it meant in terms of a you know revenue package yeah and it, it's it's well there wasn't a lot of uh I guess precedent in the market here right like if you're oh. in Silicon Valley people recognize that that's a big part of why they join a company and, and why they're prepared to take a haircut from working in a bank to join a startup. But I think it was still a relatively new concept in New Zealand at the time. And mm-hmm. and you get people that come on board and it's like, I don't care what you pay me, I'm here for the equity. But a lot of people would see it as kind of like it's on paper or they couldn't see the material value. More recently, people have come back and said, oh, wow, actually, right. I see what you mean now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, worked, that worked out. But it's kind of five years too late for the conversations you had with them at that point in time. So I think in, yeah. in the market generally in New Zealand, hopefully that kind of understanding is going to level up yeah. a bit now. Yeah, that's true. Mm. So I wanted to revisit a comment that you made around the redundancy period, which was around your Berlin office. Now, I understand Vend opened an office, I don't know if it was Vancouver or Toronto, somewhere else in North America. And Nick, you mentioned that part of the culture strategy was to seed Kiwis in the international locations. And so I'm very interested in Vend's experience in particular in North America. And I guess maybe Vend was slightly different, Canada versus the United States, but how did that work out? 
with with that office and the cultures and what did you learn through that process? When we went to the US, we wanted to have a presence in, in San Francisco. We wanted to have um, some market development, business development, um, you know, potentially some kind of sales roles, but we we couldn't quite justify a full market presence in, in San Francisco. I mean, we, you know, we, we were in touch with a lot of companies that had particularly zero at the time, and we knew some of the challenges they had with establishing an office, hiring, retaining talent when you're, you know, you're not the same brand in that market as you might be in New Zealand. We looked at a range of places up and down the, the coast and um, eventually settled on Toronto because it had, it was like the fifth or sixth largest city in North America, had a, a good university, uh, you know, relatively same cost of living and incomes as, as New Zealand and um, and in a good time zone. And <laughs> to most of the world, they sound American. I know my Canadian friends who are listening are probably going to hate me for saying that. But in terms of inside sales and support, it was, a, you know, it was as good as being anywhere on the East Coast. It was also much easier from a Commonwealth perspective to get visas and to send people back and forth. And so, um, so we decided to give it a go. And and then they started, and then we started to pivot some of our. Um, in fact, we sent a support, and we sent a couple of support people over as well. So we sent maybe two or three people from our NZ team to be there with them, and we hired a few local people. So we had a blend of about 50 50. Um, and I remember my first, it was probably my second or third trip when I went to San Francisco. I remember waking up in the morning and seeing emails from Vend from like before I woke up, which is which is the first time, you know, normally when you're in North America, you you don't see any emails from the company until midday. I remember seeing these kind of emails being replied to before I'd even woken up. I was like, oh, this is quite cool. And so um, probably about six months after that, we, we found our first space and then started, you know, by that point we had started to establish a bit of a brand in the market, the labor brand. We started hiring people and, and all of the things that we expected rang true. Like there was, we hired amazing people. It was kind of easy to build a similar culture there. We played into the whole kind of, you know, New Zealand versus Australia and Canada versus the US. We felt like we had that kind of kinship. We were both Commonwealth nations. Um, and, um, and yeah, so that over the course of that next year or so, I think we grew up to about 20 or 30 people, primarily support uh, inside sales and a bit of business development too. And, um, and yeah, that was probably our first major kind of overseas hub. Um, and, and I believe today it's probably one of the largest offices outside of New Zealand for event. Mm. Yeah, in the very, very early days, we, we well, we had this um, San Francisco office. You probably saw it on the website, um, Nick, when you were looking at um, joining because we just we just hired a desk in the Kiwi landing pad in San Francisco and then, you know, said that was our San Francisco office. The fact that there was no one sitting in the office was relevant. <laughs> we had an office. And then, um, but it was really interesting, the differences eh, between, um, you know, that San Francisco office culture and the Toronto office culture. Very, very different. It's, it is, I think, an interesting um, challenge or observation that when you're in what words were they different? Yeah, yeah, I think just because um so, you know, Canadians are I think you know, massive generalizations here, of course, um, and stereotype alert. But um I think, you know, Canadians are a lot more like Kiwis, quite laid back, 
quite um, self-effacing, um, you know, and e more easygoing. Whereas that doesn't really fly in the States, especially when you are in, you know, trying to get something off the ground in the States. There's no room for being self-effacing. You know, you've got to be out there and if you're talking yourself down, then that's seen as a weakness, not as a something that, you know, that is a kind of a cultural norm. And, um, and you know, we, and, and I think in America, you're much more, you know, much more direct. Um, whereas in, you know, Toronto, um, much more kind of indirect, like us, like us Kiwis. I remember it was so funny in the early days when our very first person in um, the States was Kara. Did you meet Kara? Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. I remember very well me sitting with Kara and JC and having this conversation. So a French man and an American lady and me. Um, and Walk into a bar. I, I don't. I was like, they were kind of having a disagreement about something. I was like, what the hell is happening here? It was so interesting. They were just kind of talking at each other, but they could have been talking different languages because it was like that whole kind of cultural um, norms on display, different ways of doing things, um, you know. And so I think that when you're going into other offices, really understanding. And, and this is why your culture can never be the same across different countries because every office exists within the microcosm or within the you know the greater culture of that country. So of course the um, you know American office is going to be way brasher and more direct than the Canadian office, um, and that's going to be different from you know the Melbourne office and the and the Auckland office. And so I think that you're looking for some consistency of key threads running through, but you can't, I mean, you know, in the early days, because often, you know, HR people are kind of control freaks. So um, some of that would come out occasionally. And I would want everyone to do things exactly the same. Um, and that was just, just not A, a bad decision, and B, just not possible. Because everyone would, everyone would need to, treat things a little bit differently to achieve the same result you need to go about it differently yeah i think it's helpful to have it is it was helpful for us to have people move to those offices to so that not only just like culturally to have them as kind of beacons of of, of what we were doing in nz but i think also just like you know so they knew where all the skeletons were buried they could find people they knew how to get them into the databases they knew how the systems worked because that's a real barrier to to large teams overseas right it's like it can be really slow to get things done especially if you're in different time zones and you have to wait overnight whereas if you've got people on those teams who can like literally go into the mainframe and just get the answers straight away it just speeds everything up so i think it was both a sort of cultural and, and an operational rationale um it's interesting you know, like we, i think we debated over the years about expanding in the u.s versus expanding in Canada, I, there was definitely a lot of pressure in the sort of early 2010s to take on VC money to set up a large presence in the US. You know, some companies were doing it, like Zendesk. That was, I think, that was Mickey's thing. He's like, you just got to be here. They moved from Denmark and they set up their whole team there. But then eventually they started hiring it back in Denmark as well because it was just, it was a struggle to kind of compete for talent in that market. 
Um, I remember the guys at Intercom, they started in Ireland, but they quickly moved to San Francisco and they established a really strong presence there. But actually, I think the difference is a lot of those companies were selling to enterprise. Like primarily, they were selling to big companies that needed to have a foot on the ground there. For Vend, we, we weren't selling to enterprise businesses. We were selling to small businesses. We needed to be available for business development and VC conversations, but we didn't need a large software team or a large um, sort of sales footprint in the US. And so it, it really does depend on what your proposition is and, and you know what, what your needs are and who your customers are. And of course, it's all kind of radically changed in the last couple of years now where there's been a much greater emphasis on shifting to you know those non kind of centers of gravity. And it may come back the next year or two, but I certainly see companies shifting large swathes of people into you know, more rural areas of, of the US, Denver, Atlanta, um, Canada, and, you know, even hiring internationally too. So so I think in, in retrospect, it was probably the right move for us. And I don't think it would have made things different. But there's a small party that wonders, well, what if we'd just gone all in and had a team of 50 people in San Francisco? What would have that meant for capital? What would have it meant for deals, for all that kind of stuff? About the time, Nick, that you joined Zero, it felt like a quite a number of the team that had been around since very early decided to go in and seek opportunity elsewhere. So Ross joined Zero about a similar time, assumed that there was a change with the guard, or was there something that was happening around that time where people kind of felt like that they were going to retire their innings at Vend and, and do the next thing? I think it's, I think like five years as a, as a lifetime in a startup. Like I think that's typically... It's actually quite remarkable that people stick around for that long. It was the longest time I'd ever been in a, a single job. And so I think um, I think it's a natural kind of, I, I think there's a natural point in most people's kind of careers between four and six years where they, you're probably, like you're sort of making it up as you go for the first year, years two to, two to five, you, you know what you're doing, you've got the network and you can be really effective. Five or six and beyond, there's a risk that you sort of become a bit cynical. And it's like, oh, we tried that before, it didn't work. I personally found myself, feeling like that at, at Vend towards the end of sort of mid 2016. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like I quite have the same energy that I used to have. Uh, I could see where the business is going. I see I could have an impact, but I feel like I could take those skills and apply them somewhere else. And I think a lot of other people went through that. I think um, most of those people stuck around through the, the restructure. Like we really wanted to see the company come back into a healthy position to retain the culture and, um, and, you know, get things back on track. And so, you know, a lot of us stayed there through till 2016, but I think, and it was the same, like Vaughan had the same kind of idea, right? He didn't, he didn't want to be the CEO to scale it to the, you know, the size that it could become. It, it needed a different sense of management, a different sense of leadership and the skills that got us to that point weren't necessarily the skills that would take us elsewhere. And I think many of us sort of reflected on that and felt like the best thing we could do would be to, you know, let others have a shot at doing that and go and apply our skills into different areas. And a lot of that, a lot of those early people that kind of happen about the same time. Mel, is that kind of similar to your yeah, observation? Yeah, I think so. I think so because I, I, I completely agree with you that five years is a very, very long time in that environment. And um, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you, you want to go and do different things for yourself. Um, and I think there is that sense of, something that you said that resonates with me but I'm not too sure exactly why you know that kind of well we've tried that before but you know it didn't work or whatever that but when you've been working in a startup for five years the thing that you leave is so different from the thing that you started with you know like entirely different 
Um, so, you know, you could try that thing again and it might work because the company is different. But if you're carrying around the mind, that mindset, which, which, which can sort of take root after a period of time, then it's just, you know, everything has a beginning and everything has an end and, you know, you want to refresh your, um, you know, that your energy and have a new challenge and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't think that, you know, again, you know, similar to the, there shall be no redundancies at the end, you know, it was kind of similar, like no one shall leave. We shall, <laughs> we shall, we shall make this this place so that no one shall ever want to leave. You know, it was like, um, and then of course you realize that, um, you know, people will want to get on with their lives and do different things and that's fine. Um, and you know, sometimes I don't know, happen at the end, I don't know. Well, it's like being a parent. It's like being a parent. You, you, you don't want you don't want your kids hanging around at home until they're fifty, right? Like, there's a point at which there's a sort of arc of of parenting. I'm assuming. I think I'm right in the. I don't know if it goes that way. It goes this way. I'm I'm right in the trenches now. But no, there's some point where they're going to want their independence, and I'll set them free, and I'll just be kind of hopefully proud of of my role and creating something in the world. And it's the same in an organization, right? There's a sort of Sometimes yeah. in the early stages of startup, when people move on, is it feeling like, oh, somehow we failed because they want to go and do something else? What you actually learn over time is that your role is to help those people become, help them onto whatever it is they want to do next. And I've just been incredibly proud to see what all the people that kind of went through that Venn diaspora have gone on to do. Yeah. You know, both in New Zealand and around the world. And, and I know they'll continue to have an impact. And I know, you know, that both talent and capital will recycle back through the industry and, and it will help kind of fuel the next wave as it did through trade me as it's done through zero and i think ultimately that's a really good thing for the industry and there's just a there's a point when you have to sort of reflect on you know your role is not to <laughs> to keep everybody hanging around forever but to you know to get the best out of them while they are and help help create the best for them when they move on to whatever it is they do next yeah and i think that because of the culture that we created even if you, you know, even if you leave a vend and you don't work there, you'll never like not be a vendor. You'll always be a vendor, regardless of whether you're currently that's where you currently draw your salary from or not. Um, and I think that people have a a real sense of belonging to to that thing that they were a part of, and the thing actually looked quite different. If you were there right at the beginning. Um, you know, it looked very vastly different to what it looked like just before the acquisition. But it's still your experience at Vend and you're still a vendor. Um, and, you know, that, you know, once a vendor, always a vendor thing. Uh, I do think that people kind of feel it in their heart. And I think if Vend, you know, want, need, needed some help from somebody, you know, someone working at Vend to reach out and ask someone who had worked at Vend, there'd be like an immediate connection there. We're like, oh, sure, yep, I'll help you out with that. Hmm. I don't, I don't have any sort of pithy words of wisdom to close out. I think it's just, um, it was a very influential time on on the lives and careers of of a great number of people, who, many of whom are still very close today, and some of them, including myself, are actually family, <laughs> literally, and so. Um, you know, it was a really great experience. I feel very grateful for the opportunity. You know, I think it was kind of looking for something like that. And so it was a bit of luck and a bit of fortune and a bit of timing. Um, and I, I, I see it a lot in early stage companies these days who 
or at the kind of beginning of that journey. And, you know, my, I don't really have any advice for them except, it, you know, it's, if you get the chance to do it at least once in your career, it's a really great thing to be part of. Whatever role you play, whether it's your own company or whether it's something you join, and and hopefully, but you kind of take it for what it is, right? It's it's definitely quite different to your typical kind of uh, straightforward corporate career. It has its ups and downs, but it can it can literally you know give you sort of twenty years worth of career in a short space of time, and I think that's what's amazing out of it. And all the things that we learned and all the connections that we made are really important for everything that you know that I personally do now, and I, I'm sure the same for Mel. And so um, my memories are you know primarily fond, and I've learned a ton of things and. Always happy to share those reflections. Yeah, I would. I would say the same thing. Just such a defining moment um, of my life, and I, I mean, I really feel like I have, um, you know, that I had three children: um, Holly, Summer, and Vend. And um, r- really, such a humongous part um, of my life, and will be forever grateful. Um, for the opportunity to, you know, be part of the journey, to, you know, to, to be on the ride. Forever grateful um, that I married Vaughan and, and, you know, took off on this incredible ride with him and had two delightful children along the way. Um, and then grateful afterwards now um, that, you know, just learned so much that that um you know that that i'm sure you do the same nick you know like impart the learnings to to other people who are are also um on that journey and just yeah massive enormous part of my life and those are some great parting words for us to conclude the second episode about vend through the recollections of mel and nick we've got one more episode about vend and then we'll be welcoming new guests onto six This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures and learnings for Kiwi tech organisations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.